Well, we are over the one-year mark in pandemical world, as you all are aware, of course. In our house, that means we are also over the one-year mark for our older son, Riley, being basically homeschooled. We pretty quickly figured out that Riley sitting by himself doing schoolwork alone in his room was not the best plan for how to survive this year intact, and that means that I have become intimately acquainted with the Common Core math standards. Many of you, I'm sure, are even more intimate with the Common Core than I am. Um, One of our uh, attendees at our church can train all of us in how to teach the Common Core math if we wanted to. Now, others of you have seen the Pixar movie Incredibles 2, where Mr. Incredible, superhero, is trying to help his son with his math homework and out of frustration explodes, I don't know that way! Why would they change math? Math is math! Before this year, I had mostly just heard confused anecdotes about Common Core math from other parents who felt about the same as Mr. Incredible, that their kids were learning math in a way that was unrecognizable, sometimes incomprehensible to them. And so I was kind of curious to see what we were in for when Riley and I started working our way through his math homework. I love it. Here's the difference in a nutshell for those of you who are only vaguely aware of what I'm talking about here. And yes, to all you educators, this, what I'm about to say, is a gross exaggeration that does not capture all the nuances, but it's close enough to make the point. See, back in my day, you memorized stuff and then you regurgitated it on the test. The Common Core gives kids tools to understand the math they're doing so that they can figure out the best way to approach a problem on their own. Because sometimes a math problem in the real world isn't going to look exactly like the one you memorized from the book, and if you don't have a few different ways to approach different situations, you probably aren't going to know what to do. So what we're going to talk about today, and I'm sure this is exactly what you were expecting when you downloaded this podcast, is how Jesus is like the Common Core. Well, the Pharisees are how we taught math back in my day. Sort of. Something like that. (laughs) We'll just go with it for now. But we are in Matthew 23 this week, which is taken up by a series of woes that Jesus pronounces on the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you lock people out of the kingdom of heaven, for you do not go in yourselves, and when others are going in, you stop them. That sort of thing. It's Jesus at his most cutting and confrontational, which is saying something if you've worked through Matthew with us, because Jesus is often cutting and confrontational in this gospel. And it's important for us to have a clear idea of what it is Jesus is accusing the scribes and Pharisees of, because there are some easy caricatures that sometimes get tossed around about the Pharisees, but that aren't all that accurate to what the Pharisees were actually like and what they actually believed. Now, first, when Jesus calls them hypocrites, it isn't that they say one thing and do another, as if they were telling people to be holy, but they themselves were acting immorally. The Pharisees were the holiest of the holy people. They followed their understanding of the law and the requirements of the Torah to the letter, uh, beyond the letter even. They very much practiced what they preached. But instead, the word Jesus is using means something closer to play-acting, pretending, putting on a show. They're doing what they believe to be all the right things as a show of holiness, while in fact their hearts are far from God. That is Jesus's critique, that they're trying to appear to all outward appearances as the people of God, when in fact their trust is not in God, but instead their trust is in the show they're putting on. That looking holy is the same thing as being holy. Now, we've all met these people before, of course, who do all the right things, but for all the wrong reasons. 
before we moved to Illinois, Meredith and I heard a lot about Midwest niceness and politeness. That's politeness with a capital P. And I think the same is true of the South. It's not just the Midwest, by the way. But what we realized pretty quickly is that politeness is, at least half the time, used as a way of throwing shade and looking down on someone else. It's a disingenuous, smug, self-righteous sort of politeness that you can just tell by the tone of voice and the body language that while the words that are coming out are proper and nice, the meaning that they're actually meant to convey is that these people are just barely able to put up with you. But back to the Pharisees. Why? What are the Pharisees playing at here if they are play-acting? You may have heard me say something like this before, but the Pharisees' basic worldview could be summed up like this. God promised that Israel would return from exile, that Israel's enemies would be driven out and all God's promises in the Old Testament would come true. But that hasn't happened. And the reason why that hasn't happened in the Pharisees' understanding must be, because this is what the prophets and Moses clearly said, that our whole hearts have not repented and turned back to God. And the way that we could turn back to God is by keeping the law better. We haven't kept the law well enough, which is why God hasn't kept God's promises. So what we need to do then is to keep the law better. And so we are going to get really good at following the rules, doing all the little things we find in Torah. In fact, to make sure we don't accidentally violate any of those rules, we need to, in their words, build a fence around the law to protect ourselves from even getting close to it, which is why they get mad at Jesus's disciples picking grain on the Sabbath. Now, is picking grain on the Sabbath work? Well, no, not really when you're just picking a handful of it, but it's close. I mean, who's to say at what point, what exact number of heads of grain that you've picked, you go from getting a snack to doing work. And so maybe we shouldn't do either of them just in case. This is what Jesus is getting at when he says in verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint, dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. It's these you ought to have practiced without neglecting the others. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Now, did the law say to tithe herbs and spices? No, it said to tithe grain and fruit the main food crops, the source of sustenance. But herbs and spices are close to that. And so maybe just to be safe, we'll tithe those too. That way, if we can get everyone to follow, not only the laws in the Old Testament, but the further rules and regulations that we've layered on top of that, then we can be absolutely sure that we have fulfilled our end of the bargain and then God will keep God's promises because we will have returned to the covenant. And that is where Jesus parts ways with the Pharisees, because detailing the multitude of rules and regulations and then enforcing them does three things. First, it makes following God a burden. As verse four says, they tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on the shoulders of others, but they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to move them. One of Jesus's main points is that walking the path to God's kingdom is walking a path that leads to life, true life not the fake life offered by the idols of money or family or security or power, but true life, abundant life, life that is available now and stretches on into eternity. That's what Jesus means when he says that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Rather than endless rules and regulations, which leave you with the impression that you always might be sinning and always might be messing up, 
no matter how hard you try. Rather than that burden, Jesus offers you the lightness of his presence and the peace of not trying so damn hard all the time. The Pharisees make it a burden. A burden that they, by the way, believe that they can bear, and so should everyone else. Which brings us to the second problem with making following God about the rules. It leads to pride. Holiness becomes a show for others and for God to see, rather than a way of life to live. Look at how good I am at following the rules. Aren't I something? Surely God is happy with me. One of Jesus' most common topics in Matthew is trying to overturn his disciples' desire for status, because chasing status doesn't lead to life. Chasing status leads to selfishness. Even when it, and this is the case for the Pharisees, I'm sure, even when it's status for the sake of not just yourself, but for your family as well, it's still selfishness. Chasing status turns us inwards. It puts me above others, my family above that family, my holiness over their holiness, and all of those things are idols that lead to death. Jesus says that the central laws of the Old Testament are to love God and love neighbor. Outward-focused, giving-not-taking sort of laws. All the other rules, he says, are meant to be ways of living out those central principles, ways to practically express love of God and love of neighbor in the particular context I find myself in. That central orientation of love towards those outside me in my circle, that is what following God is. Which brings us to the third problem with piling up rules and regulations as a way of following God. It misplaces the emphasis. When Jesus talks about following God, being his disciple, fulfilling the law, his focus is consistently on the principles, not the rules. Let's go back to the verses I read earlier. Jesus doesn't say stop tithing on your herbs because tithing on anything can be an expression of love for and trust in God. I can freely give out of what I have because I know that no matter what, God will make sure I'm okay. And that freedom from reliance on my possessions for security is actually the road to life. It's not maximizing what I have and holding on to it that makes me okay. That will lead to death. So if tithing on mint and dill and cumin is a helpful expression of your love for God and trust in God to provide for you, great, do it. But don't confuse the rules for the principles behind the rules. Tithing is only meaningful insofar as it helps us to express our love and trust. And it can be a really helpful reminder of that. Giving 10% away for its own sake doesn't really matter one way or the other. What does matter, Jesus says, are the weightier things like justice, mercy, faithfulness. Those are the principles behind the rules that give the rules their significance. And here's the beauty of this framework. We live in a vastly different time and place than Jesus did or than Moses did. A rule about tithing the mint we grow is completely meaningless for those of us who don't, you know, grow mint. A principle about trusting God to make it okay instead of our possessions making it okay, well, that is timeless. We will express that principle differently in this time and place. The rules will change, but justice, love, faithfulness, mercy, those won't change. So it's not, it doesn't matter how we live, no rules anymore, not at all. But the principles guide our practices. What it means to love God and love our neighbors in 2021 America is not the same as what it meant to love God and love our neighbor in 30-something Galilee or 1,000-something BC Israel. 
but we are just as able to express love for God and neighbor now, even though things have changed. And this brings us back to the common core. God's goal, and you've surely heard me say this before, is for us to partner with God to bring God's goodness and justice to the world. We are to be God's representatives in the world. And the way God wants to accomplish that goal is not to give us a handbook of rules to follow. The way God wants to accomplish that goal is to give us principles that will guide us towards life. And then to see us develop the maturity to be able to figure out for ourselves how to apply those principles in whatever new situation our world might throw at us. Any of you who have ever led or managed other people, you know this is the only way to actually accomplish anything. One of the people who's a part of our church is a principal, and if her teachers needed to check the rule book on how to respond to whatever challenge or question or situation arose in the classroom that day, that's not going to work out too well. Another of the people who's a part of our church runs a glass company, and we were talking just the other day at our church picnic about how estimating a job for his company means being able to look at the plans and then to adapt to whatever quirks those plans might throw at you. Any of you who are parents also know that this is true. You know that the goal is to raise kids who can be responsible humans out in a chaotic world that might throw anything at them. And sometimes they're going to need to make quick decisions in the face of a question they've never even thought of before. And part of being an adult is being able to take those situations and in light of the principles, whatever they are, that you've decided to be guided by to make the best decision you can, whether it's by the rule book or not. So like the common core, Jesus wants his followers to be guided by the principles that can adapt to any particular situation. Jesus wants us to be mature, grown-up disciples, which is not the same as just kind of being out on our own. When one of our, the teachers that I was mentioning, when they don't know what to do, they can come to a principal or another experienced teacher and get some help thinking through how to apply the principles they want to teach by to this new situation that they've encountered. We can do the same with Jesus and with each other. But over time, I think the hope is that the principles of God's kingdom, justice, mercy, love, faithfulness, that they would become more and more ingrained in us. And we would be more and more capable of applying those principles to whatever space we find ourselves in. And this is, by the way, why we have chosen in our worship time together as a church to limit our sermon time and increase the time we have for stories. Because stories are where we hear how one another applies the principles of God's kingdom in their own lives. Or we hear about the challenges and questions that other people have faced in figuring out how to do that. And we've chosen to increase our time to practice and respond. Our goal each week is that we might be equipped to actually live out whatever the sermon is about. And this week when we were gathered together, Leslie led us through a time of response to give us an opportunity to listen, and to reflect on some of the principles that guide us as followers of Jesus. And to do that, she led us in a time of Lectio Divina um, from a passage in Philippians. So what I'm going to do is not lead a whole practice of Lectio Divina, but instead to read the passage from Philippians and to encourage you to take some time to reflect on it and listen to it and think about how the principles in it might impact the way that you follow Jesus into the world. So these are the words of Paul from Philippians 4, verses 8 and 9. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, 
whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put those into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Amen.